0: Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I spoke with the lovely Kate O'Neill. She is a a tech humanist. And I'll tell you more about Kate in a second, but I wanted to talk about last week's guest, uh, Dan Hodges. And he and I, as I was walking out of his house, I said to him, oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot to ask you. How did you deal with all the crime scenes and things that you came upon? And very calmly, he said, I just did. And so, he's a very zen guy. I was so laid back, as I mentioned last week. Um, I told him that I was going to be going out to the body farm uh, out in Knoxville and talking to them for the show. The body farm is, um, uh, for example, if you, you leave your body, after you pass away, you leave your body to the body farm and they... They're forensic scientists there, Um, they put you out into the elements, it rains on you, they put things on you, dirt, whatever, and they, um, it's how they learn how the body decomposes, what happens to the body in various elements, heat, dry, um, rain, yada, yada, and um, so anyway, I said to Dan, I'm a little unsure how I'm going to stomach that being that it's going to be around cadavers, basically. And he said to put vapor Vicks Vapor Rub under the nose, and, um, and that will help. Apparently, that's how he dealt with many a crime scene. So, good advice from Dan. Anyway, uh, Kate O'Neill is awesome. She uh, is the founder and CEO of KO Insights, which can be found at koinsights.com. Um, she's an author. She wrote a book called Pixels and Place and um, her she does many things she's a consultant as I said an author a speaker a strategist Um, she came to Nashville to promote Pixels in Place and did a a reading and a lecture at Parnassus Books here in town it was so fascinating Um, and I asked her to be on the show and she graciously said yes she's working on her second book now which will be out uh, sometime I think next year and it's a really cool conversation. We talked about uh, how humans interact with the digital world, um, what it all means for you know security and safety, uh, how um, how um, our phones gather information about us, and that how valuable that is to the marketplace. Just all that kind of stuff. It's a really interesting conversation. Um, as usual, uh, please spread the word about Hey Human. You know where to find me, obviously, because you're listening to me now, and therefore you have found me. But please tell your friends and family and such. Um, and if you get a chance, as I always say, go to iTunes and rate uh, rate, and review Hey Human. I really appreciate that. Um, we've got over 11,000 listeners now, so you guys are spreading the word, and it, it's getting out there, and I'm really appreciative. Um, I'm on uh heyhumanpodcast.com always with the links for every episode um all the information that we talk about I, I stick stuff up on the heyhumanpodcast.com uh kate's uh episode is really fascinating and i have a lot of links to stick up there so definitely check that out um at instagram and facebook is heyhumanpodcast super simple and email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. I've got fantastic episodes coming up. Um, and there's really, there's great episodes prior. So if you get a chance, if you haven't yet, go back and check out the old stuff. Because um, it's not old. It's, it's all relevant. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I got. That's my self-promotion plugging. Um, thanks for listening. As always, uh, here we go. Hi, Kate O'Neill. Hi there, Susan Ruth. <laughs> Thanks for being on Hey Human
1: podcast. Thanks for having me. You're coming all the way from New York. That's right. That's right. And uh, despite some technical difficulties getting connected, here we are. Here we are. And you're representing
0: with your "I love New York" t-shirt.
1: Yeah, actually, it's an "I tweet New York" t-shirt. Oh, that's <laughs> Yeah, a little, little Twitter bird instead of a heart. That is I love it. So funny. That's perfect for you. So, I'm going <laughs> to run is. down some
0: accolades before and just who you are, so that even, just in case the people. I always do a preamble on the show where I describe who I'm talking to and some of their accomplishments or whatever. But sometimes, you know, people skip over that stuff. But now that we're here and they're listening, they have to hear it. So, all right. All right. So, you are the founder and CEO of KO Insights. And that's koinsights.com, for those of you following yeah. along at home. Uh, and you're the previous CEO and founder of MetaMarketer. Correct. That is correct. Okay. And you that's an analytics and strategy agency. You're, you're, you were the first content manager role at, first content manager at Netflix. That's Awesome.
1: Yeah, it was pretty awesome, actually. Uh, So it was, you know, back in, I was one of the first hundred employees there. And it was, uh, it was at a time where, um, how many people remember this or, or even know this, but when Netflix first got started, they were renting DVDs, you know, a la carte, just as if you were going to Blockbuster. So, you know, you had a due date and a time you had to get it back and there were late fees and stuff like that. So, you know, you'd rent the DVD, it would cost like seven bucks or whatever, and then you'd have to send it back. And then they figured out this subscription model where yeah. you like, you paid a set amount, you know, and you got the number of DVDs each, each month or whatever. Um, and that they had just started that program when um, I, I became a customer, I was renting, you know, the a la carte way. And then uh, they did the subscription trial and I was in like an alpha or beta program for it. And I was like, this is genius. Yeah. I have to be part of this. This is just the smartest thing. So I, I sort of gave them my resume and was like, figure out a role for me. I would love to just be part of anything. So they created this content manager role. And uh, yeah, I was the first content manager at Netflix. I had a team of six content producers. We managed the whole uh, database that contained all the descriptions and metadata and everything wow. about um, all the movies. And so and I did things like uh, co co-managed a project that introduced all these um, dynamic elements to the site. Like, so things that are standard in e-commerce now, but that really weren't as common. Then, like, um, you know, being able to to um, offer up personalized content to people on every page based on, you know, your ratings and preferences and things like that. So we would know, like, if you were looking at a buddy cop movie, we could show you more buddy cop movies you might like or something like that. So just some really, really cool stuff that we had the chance to do um, in those days, so that's a fun, so fun gig.
0: to think that what you created is now the modus operandi for basically every streaming service on the planet.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and then it's
0: been interesting, too,
1: because, uh, you know, with with Netflix's move to streaming and everybody else has moved to streaming instead of DVDs, um, one thing that's, that's always been fascinating to me is that, um, you know, Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix, was investing really heavily into um R&D for um, for streaming which at the time we were talking about as set top boxes like in 99 2000 2001 that time frame whenever anybody thought about what was next in video it was set top boxes you know so you thought about like you know you, you got your your um, cable through a cable box that sat on top of your TV and so the the thought was wh- whatever was going to come next was going to be some Distributed form of set top boxes. And it kind of was because, like, Roku in that generation. Mm of device was like, like the predecessor. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Apple TV, that sort of thing. Yeah. So really Netflix is uh, rather Reed's vision of being able to see that far into the future and really understand that they had to under, they had to really get streaming at a functional level to be able to do set-top boxes, which really enabled them to be able to do streaming in the, the sense that we know it now, which mm-hmm. is just like the, the loose streaming service like through your computer. Um, so it's it's a fascinating thing to me that that he would have to have had that kind of vision mm-hmm. because Roku didn't even come out as a device until like 2007 and really the streaming um, you know sort of followed from there 2007 2008 so to think that in 99 2000 he was investing. You know, research and development dollars into figuring out streaming at a time when they were still actively engaged in trying to win against Blockbuster, who Crazy. wasn't out of the and picture. And they,
0: they put Blockbuster under, really. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I just love that example of, of, you know, what it takes to really be a strategic leader, you know, to have that, that level of foresight and vision. So
0: what you're saying is she's
1: an alien. <laughs> <laughs> or something. something he's got he's got the tips man he's, he's in on the goods it's pretty it, i mean and now of course netflix
0: is a production company as well you know they put out their own movies and television programming and it's exceptional it's not yeah. just fly by night it's exceptional
1: that's right. Yeah, and I feel like actually um, most of the streaming services that are doing original content are doing a bang-up job yeah. at it. I mean, everybody, everybody's content, Amazon's, Hulu's, like all yeah. the original programming, yeah. by and large, has been really top-quality stuff. So it's really interesting to be in this kind of renaissance of what um, what produced video content is, is about.
0: Yeah, it's, it's astounding. Eventually, I guess we're going to have to get to the point where... Uh, they'll hologram in our living room or something then we'll watch it as if the actors were standing in front of us or
1: something oh my gosh what a crazy imagination you had no no it's totally true though I mean you, you imagine like what what could possibly come next you know yeah. the, the the whole advent of like virtual reality and augmented reality and um, the ways that that's going to play out in, in terms of entertainment and how that's going to become mainstream is going to be fascinating to watch.
0: People will never leave their house. So you developed Toshiba's first intranet. That is yeah. insane.
1: <laughs> well, that was kind of a funny uh, coincidence of timing almost where it was like, um, you know, I was a language major and uh, I, was, I was a German major and a Russian and linguistics double minor in, in my undergrad uh, work and and I had a concentration in international studies, so all of this made complete sense when I first came ab- across the web and was like, you know, I really want to develop a website. I happened to be managing the language laboratory at the University of Illinois Chicago at the time, which was my alma mater, and I, I w- had gone to work for the language lab uh, at some point during my schooling, and then eventually took over managing it. And I, so I built a website for the lab. And it was during a time, like in 94, when you could keep track of every website that was coming online every day. Like, that's how few there were. And so people were creating these, like, manually curated lists of, like, here's all the new websites today. <laughs> and so I made it onto one of those lists. It got me talking with a guy at SoSiva, And then, you know, it was one thing led to another. And they brought me out to interview for a role there. And I ended up building their intranet. The, the first intranet there, it sat on my desk. Uh, on a server, on a desk, on um, a, a Spark Station too, and I, I had like you know had to install all the servers and everything myself. I didn't know what I was doing, but nobody else did either, and so that was okay. kind of the fun. That's the the fun of it was like figuring out how does this work and and reading up on it. And this is like kind of in the, in the days before you know you could Google anything.
0: Uh, yeah, there was the
1: equivalent, there yeah, was. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a crazy time, yeah. but it was really fun. You and had to get and your
0: Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs>
1: Yeah, sort of, yeah, you know, and it's funny, like, uh, it's, it's just, I think now it's, it's been a really great point of reference for me whenever I talk to um, young people Mm -hmm. in like high school or college, you know, trying to figure out what their future looks like is like, you know, you don't know, you have no idea, because things are going to exist by the time you get out of school that don't exist today, like they did for me. And I could never have anticipated that my career would take this, technology turn, and that, you know, 20 years later, um, I would be describing myself as a tech humanist and writing books about how technology fits into the human experience. And, you know, none of that made any sense to me at the Mm. time, uh, you know, in in 1990, whatever year it was.
0: (laughs) Having a a proclivity for language, to me, it makes perfect sense that you'd be drawn to the language of a computer. This...
1: there is a, there is some sense to that. Like, I think one way that, uh, that, um, it stays relevant in my work and in my life is that, um, I, I, look at things through the lens of meaning, uh, and meaning is a really important recurring concept in, in the work I do. And it, it also plays out in how I think about, um, uh, the web or digital experience as a whole, because there's, there's the way that in, in languaging you think about like semantics mm-hmm. versus syntax. There's like the structure, mm-hmm. which is syntax, and then there's the meaning layer of a sort, you know, which is the semantics. And uh, if you think about those as sort of two almost separable layers, mm-hmm. it's a little bit similar to how I think we experience things like the web or digital experience as a whole. Like, there's the kind of underpinnings and the code and the the linkages and things like that that all form the architecture of a sort that, that on top of which we create this um this layered content and that that's the meaning and the, the fundamental understanding of like what it is we're trying to say <laughs> to one another but those things totally rely on one another you can't have one without the other and it's so a, i do it's think a, that that relates sorry go ahead
0: i know i was just saying it's a, a visual aesthetic too i mean i think that those people that people building their websites for an example is they're trying to they're trying to not only get the information in place but really it's They have to draw people in visually, especially nowadays, where the attention span is null.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And and so certainly, you know, there's this kind of um, nonverbal language piece that that comes into play as well. So, yeah, so for me, the language metaphor stays very relevant in how I think about digital experience and technology and uh, how people how people use technology to communicate with one another is kind of kind of the recurring theme throughout my career is like you know using that mode or, or sort of coming back to that question again and again in in different uh different ways trying to solve different problems.
0: Well, th- th- really quick going I I'm, I'm going to write this down cuz uh I, want, I don't want to forget to ask you this. But um <laughs> explain to folks who may not know what an intranet
1: is. I
0: know, it's, oh, you know I know oh, this, so, some people won't know.
1: Sure, sure. So uh, you know, it's usually um, within a company uh, it could could be an organization, it could be you know kind of a more loosely connected set of people, but but typically in a company, as uh, certainly a company as big as, as Toshiba, or I also worked on the intranet at HCA, so Hospital Corporation of America, which is an enormous company. Um, any of those big companies have a need to you know share documents and have a, like a repository of knowledge and. Um, be able to communicate with one another, uh, with other employees inside the company mm-hmm. in ways that uh, that the web kind of facilitates, but they certainly don't want to be doing it out on, you know, public websites. Uh, and that wouldn't make any sense for customers or, you know, patients or whoever to run across that stuff. So it has to be secure. It has to be locked down. But it also has to, it follows, you know, a lot of the same sort of user or usability requirements that a website does, you know, so a typical website does. So you have to keep, you have to think about like who's going to be using it and, and how do you make sure that they can get to what they need quickly and things like that. So Mm -hmm. it's uh, always a lot of those kinds of challenges with Mm -hmm. it, especially for a group like HCA with, you know, so many different kinds of, of job roles Mm -hmm. represented within that company, and so thinking about like how people would be able to get to, to the information they need quickly and not have it be confusing to try to get to was always a very interesting challenge.
0: Was, is that what the initial idea of Facebook was an internet for colleges, right? I mean, it was like a bigger idea of the little idea kind of thing? Or?
1: Yeah, that's kind of an interesting comparison. It would actually be more like an extranet is the, mm-hmm. the term that would generally be used if it's like outside of a, the internal network of a company um but you know very quickly i think that this just was no similar um model for what facebook became at the time you know, we if you watch the movie um the social network I haven't uh, seen it yet. if you Yeah it. yeah if you if you've not seen it it's pretty good if you're into uh, you know Aaron Sorkin I love Aaron Sorkin
0: dialogue yeah big fan <laughs>
1: yeah so fan. Uh, one thing that's interesting in that I, I hadn't realized until I saw that movie and I don't know if this is fictionalized or if it's true that um, Mark Zuckerberg was was using LiveJournal really extensively throughout the process of creating Facebook in the movie. And I don't know if that's actually the case or not, but I was a really big LiveJournal user. And so it's a kind of a similar idea if you use it that way, where you can just post statuses and, um, you know, share it out to your group of friends and they can like and comment on it or whatever. Yeah. Um, so so the fact that it sort of came from this blogging platform in a sense, makes, makes some sort of sense when you think about Facebook that way.
0: So there was something you said a second ago about, um, I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget, um, about the way we use language uh, through these modes now, you know, and how we, we interface with the computers or our phones or whatnot. Do you think in that regard that humans are becoming more machine I mean, and there's that idea of, like, oh, someday robots are going to take over. And I'm thinking, we
1: already are robots in our own way. You know? I don't know. That's an interesting question. And I, I, I think we certainly have adapted to technology in, in ways that um, that probably would have looked very foreign, like, 20 to 50 or whatever more years ago. Yeah. You know, if, if anybody, I think anybody who is, like, time traveling from a few decades ago were to land in 2017 in your average restaurant and see like families sitting together, look, all looking at their phones. Um, that would strike them as very, very odd. And it, it strikes people today as odd. I think sometimes too, except if you're one of those people and it feels very natural that yeah. like every, everyone has their interconnected lives that, um, that happens through the internet um, as well as their physical lives that happen in the space around them. So I don't know that I'd necessarily think that we're becoming more robot or, you know, Android or whatever, although that certainly can can happen in the future. I mean, I think we, we know that things like, uh, you know, implants are going to probably happen. You know, we, we have uh, already...
0: is an Elon Musk working? Or is it?
1: Yeah, well Elon Musk is working on on something that's more like a a neural network that would that would connect with our our own thinking and our own brain power. So there's yeah that's a really interesting hybrid idea, but I'm even meaning like, you know, as opposed to wearing an Apple Watch, let's say, or a Fitbit, you know, maybe instead of having to wear it as a bracelet type or 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 watch type accessory, you could just have it implanted in your arm or in your you know, chest or your neck or whatever, and then you have that device with you all the time. If you trust it, if you if you think that's a good thing to do, and so things like being able to measure the amount of steps you take every day, and you know the things that people use those wearables for, being able to track heart rate and being able to you know do all the things that, that people do within the quantified self movement. Um, that could certainly happen more effectively with an implant. And then the more you think about the potential for things like that, the more you think like, yeah, we probably do have this trajectory where, or at least a possible trajectory where we become a little more robot or a little more Android or whatever it is. I yeah. um, you know,
0: want uh, save that thought of what you just said yeah. for what I'm going to be asking you in a minute. But I think it's <laughs> just so fascinating to think about, well, like for example, my father has a pacemaker. Which is Mm -hmm. keeping his heart regulated. It is a machine that he wears inside his body. And as do many people have machines that, you know, run particular parts of their body that, you know, might not be visible to the outside world. But then you say to somebody, oh, would you ever implant an iPhone into your body so that when you go grocery shopping, all you have to do is walk through and it's cataloged everything you've purchased or, you know, whatever. It horrifies people to a large extent. But I think, gosh, it's really not. It would not supp- – I don't feel like I would do it. I don't even own an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or anything like that. But that's just me. But I don't I, – it would not shock me that people would opt for that. I've seen the lines at the Mac store when the Apple Watch came out or the next big, big thing that Steve Jobs created, you know.
1: Yeah, it's it's not that far-fetched because I think, you know, we if we're really self-conscious or self-aware about it – we realize, like, there for most of us, there is not a moment of the day that we're without our phones. You mm-hmm. know, that's that's already the the persistence of the device is already in place, um, and so you know, then to step to wearables isn't a big a big um, jump, and to go from wearables to implants feels like a big jump because there's a level of invasiveness and kind of like. Uh, I think that starts to breach issues of trust that people have, like, what if I want to get rid of this thing or what if I want to turn it off or how do I know that it's not going to malfunction or perform some nefarious deed or whatever, um, or infect me in some way? Like, I think those concerns, if we can, if we have a, um, sort of social discourse that starts to address those and really, um, make those feel less, uh, anxious mm-hmm. then I, I think we we will start to see that become uh pretty normal because it, it doesn't feel like functionally uh it's that big of a stretch right like and you think about all the advantages it could happen but believe me i'm not uh necessarily speeding our way there because i'm not I'm, I'm just as nervous as most people about that kind of thing i think mm-hmm. that you know, from mm-hmm. my vantage point working around technology very closely and you know kind of doing research and analysis and speaking and writing about, um, technology and innovation, I certainly see, um, the, the, the ways that tech companies go wrong and, you know, the ways that leadership of tech companies can steer off course. Mm -hmm. Um, so to think of entrusting that level of access to my body, to a, a technology firm, uh, you know, to a device that, yeah. that ultimately is owned by a technology firm and has, and all the data is accessible to that technology firm. I mean, Apple is a very trustable, trustworthy company for many people. But even even they, I feel like I would have a lot of hesitation yeah. before giving my data to them. See, so. To
0: me, it's not so far-fetched at all. I envision... This is exactly how I envision it. I envision... In, in the sense of militarily, so you have GIs, right? General issues, is what GIs mm-hmm. stands for. They have to do whatever is being told to them and that's inoculation or whatever. they. And there have been, you know, through the years, things that have been declassified where military people are used as guinea pigs in some ways or another. So who's to say that uh, a huge tech firm doesn't get a huge contract with the military? They implant something in the gi so that not only are they traceable and trackable so that if if they do get hurt or whatever like it could maybe tell tell if this this soldier is down and he is in the blah blah coordinate of of afghanistan and he's losing blood rapidly or his heart rate is slowing or whatever i could definitely see that but i could also see a future where there's some sort of a brain implant that takes away our fear or maybe our ethics or whatever to make a super soldier. There's like all these, I know I'm sort of writing science fiction right now, but it's is it that far off?
1: Well, it's science fiction only if it's not an accepted reality today, right? right. And I don't think I do think you're you're right. It's not that far off, and certainly a lot of our technology innovations have come to us by way of military innovation. Yeah. So it's it's really a plausible future. Um, it, it may even be present, and we're just not privy to that level of classified information. You know, right. at some level, so. Um, the, I try not to concern myself too much with, you know, what I think feels like science fiction. I, I, I have this sort of love-hate relationship with the, the term futurist. Um, I, you know, I get asked a lot to speak uh, to groups about uh, trends and predictions and, you know, kind of what's going on, uh, what the, the last few years' trends have been, and then what we can see kind of leading us into the next year, two years, five years, whatever. Um, and, and I try not to get too caught up in that, because I feel like what what that does is um, lead into this kind of speculative posturing that, you know, you, you try to, like, claim an idea or, you know, put yourself out there that you thought of this first or mm-hmm. whatever. What I think is much more important is to keep focused on what the human experience through all of this is going to be mm-hmm. and really bring all of the technology and all the innovation back around to how do we make sure that everything, you know, kind of, comes back to people having fulfillment and meaning and being able to live quality lives. And so, you know, questions of, you know, do, do we have implants that, you know, take away our fear and our ethics, that certainly is a, a valid concern and something to, to, you know, kind of, uh, build an idea around like, what would we do and how do we make sure that that doesn't happen in a future trajectory? And so I think that, you know, for me, like the work, the book I'm working on right now is about, um, automation and, uh, like artificial intelligence and, mm-hmm. and other forms of, uh, of, of that sort of technology and its impact on meaningful human experiences. And so I want to think about, you know, what does it look like if, um, if artificial intelligence, you know, kind of gets away from us in some ways and, you know, gets into a, a territory that's kind of w- what we would deem to be unethical if we haven't developed the sort of instru- set of instructions, right, or the, the guiding uh, parameters, right, for how the, the machine functions. Mm-hmm. Um, those are important questions, I think, when you when you think about it in that sense. Um, but again, like I, I try to just keep it reeled into how does this really affect us now and how our company is going to plan their strategy for the next few years around the innovations and the technologies they're going to deploy to, to serve humans. You know, that, that's where it comes back to, to the rubber meeting the road for me.
0: Yeah. It's funny you think about too many people like Gene Roddenberry who conceptualized beings like the Borg or what, you know, that that are that hybrid and and how it went wrong, you know. Or you could argue that maybe, excuse me, maybe it didn't go wrong, that maybe it's actually functioning correctly as a hive mind, which, you know, we could learn a lot from a hive mind, I suppose, in some ways. Sure. I mean, I I (laughs) think that...
1: Science fiction has definitely served a role, I think, for people. A lot of people who work in technology, in terms of helping them imagine possible futures and possible Mm -hmm. scenarios, it's it's never been a real part of my um, Mm -hmm. my experience. Like, I'm not literally; it's not what I'm drawn to, you know. And and I don't enjoy it. Uh, I don't I don't enjoy Mm -hmm. sci-fi movies, you know. So it's kind of funny. I think a lot of people find that surprising. Mm -hmm knowing what I do for yeah, a living. I'm surprised
0: <laughs> you know? that me.
1: <laughs> but you know what? I I think it's it's very plausible like when you when you come back to like why for me the stories that are most relatable are the ones that have some really foundational fundamental um, human relationship at yeah. its at their core. Yeah. Um, so I've never been interested in like fantasy or you know kind of created worlds or whatever. I'm yeah. very interested in in more contemporary stories or past uh, you know kind of fictitious uh, history stories of how people relate to one another. Yeah. Like that's that's what it all comes back to, and it makes complete sense I think in in context of the work I do that everything for me as a tech humanist everything is about how people relate to one another through technology.
0: Well, so that's a great segue into your book, Pixels in Place. Okay, so the full title, Pixels in Place, Connecting Human Experience Across Physical and Digital Spaces. There's, there you there in the, some of the stuff you sent me to read, um, there was a particular sentence that stood out to me of yours, a quote of yours, uh, the shape meaning takes in marketing is empathy. So... The talk First, let's talk about the book and what that means and what it's all about, and then let's talk about that sentence you had. <laughs> yeah,
1: okay. So, uh, so Pixels in Place came to be because uh, I, I was uh, hired by a group uh, to do a keynote on the meaning of place. So I've already said, you know, meaning is this kind of recurring theme through a lot of my work. And... This organization, uh, which is an organization, a national trade organization of like college admissions counselors, mm-hmm. that's the, the function they all serve, um, they had noticed my work around meaning and they, they wanted to, at their national convention, they wanted to have somebody talk about the meaning of place in essence, like, how do you distill uh, for someone who's visiting a college campus, a student visiting a college campus, and that student's parents, let's say, in a 15-minute tour, how do you get across to them what the next four to five years of their mm-hmm. lives are going to be like? You know, how do you essentialize the place? How do you get across like all of the things that they're going to experience and what's what's significant about it and what differentiates it, you know, one from another? So, um, so that was a really really interesting and fun assignment. Uh, I I really dug it, uh, but I also found during my research a ton of opportunity to explore that concept. In a more um, in a more convergence oriented way, like talking about how we think about digital experience and digital places in sort of physical ways, how we how we've kind of infused digital place with these metaphors and understandings of physical place. And so, one of the things that I do through the book is talk about the metaphors of place um, that are that are visible, sort of recognizable in digital experience, things like. Um, we talk about the you know we use the, we use the word site, um, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. certainly a, a, a you know usable in a physical context, but it's obviously a core idea in physical. We talk about a lot of the, the metaphors of um, of buildings, like windows, for example, are, describe this um, this mm-hmm. common metaphor in digital experience but they're obviously uh, borrowing from our physical world. So nice. there's a lot of that. There's so much of it. And it's really interesting to me. But then to, to take it uh, further than what I did is, is think about how to, um, uh, how to unpack that in different industries and how different uh, executives and strategists and experienced designers could think about uh, a very intentional use of the the overlap of physical and digital space in creating their experiences for customers and users and students and patients and so on like all the roles that humans play in every interaction with a brand or a company you know to really think about how to dimensionalize that for people Mm. and give give this kind of full sense of physical space and digital space because people do experience them in a combined way we very rarely go into physical space of any sort like a store or a museum or whatever without having a digital component to that experience and we very rarely experience the digital world and we don't experience the digital world without there being a physical context because we're always somewhere and we you know the the reality is a it's either a constraint like our phones like our, our we're seeing uh digital content through a constrained web browser or app or whatever so it, it really sort of shifts the context of, of how we can consume content um, or it or it enables us in some way like we could use augmented reality or a um, Google Maps kind of navigation to navigate our physical world so this interesting way in which um, digital and physical experiences complement one another as well as constrain one another it, it seemed like it was a very relevant and timely um, discussion to have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, in the the quote that you mentioned um, is part of of um, you know kind of an exploration of how meaning belongs in this discussion, and so I feel like one of the things that that happens is meaning. When I talk about meaning, it sounds really fluffy to people. It sounds at first, it sounds like oh, that's a really you know vague, abstract concept. Until I think you anchor it in how it comes to life in different fields, and so in. Marketing. Uh, in that example, I was saying it comes to life as empathy. So, if you really think about um, within the con- the discipline of marketing, if you're trying to be meaningful in marketing, you're really trying to think about what the people that you're marketing to are interested in, and how you can create natural affinity for mm. for what you're offering and those people. So, there's an alignment between what their intentions are, what what the people you're serving and and trying to market to, what their intentions are and what their needs and desires are in the world, and what you offer. So trying to bring those as much in alignment as possible. So So some very...
0: Places like Nike or that they really nail it. They understand their customer. But you had mentioned something both in the article I had read and also earlier in this conversation about sometimes they get it really wrong. And in in the article I read, you you used the word creepy. (laughs) Which (laughs) I me up because I can't even tell you how many times I've, I've been sitting with friends and we've discussed how it's so creepy that we'll just be talking about a product or a service or whatever and our phones happen to be on the table. And, of course, it's gathering information unbeknownst to us. I mean, you know, if you're in the know, you know. But if you don't know, that, you know, it's still happening. And then the next day, you see all these advertisements on your phone or on your Facebook or whatever whatever you spoke about. And yeah. that's creepy. <laughs>
1: it is creepy. And I think it's creepy. It's creepy now because we're not used to it. I think it will still feel a little creepy as, as we do get used <laughs> to it. I, I think that... Where where we are is at this kind of, um, and we'll always be at a, a kind of um, pivot point of what's acceptable and yeah. what is pushing the edges, right? Yeah. But I, I think, you know, one of my favorite examples, and it's so easy to hate on Uber anymore, but I love the example of, you know, Uber was uh, outed in a sense a couple of years ago as um, that the part of what the data that they collect when they, um, when they get your ride information, your ride request information, is your phone's battery level. And so they actually admitted, uh, a spokesperson for the company admitted that they when they collect that information, they have actually tested to see if they show you a higher price, if you have a lower battery level, that you're likely to accept it because you know, that you have a low battery level and you're kind of desperate at that point. You're like, my phone might run out of battery before the ride gets here. I better just take it. I don't have too many options right now. And so they swear up and down, or at least they did in this article, you know, a year and a half ago or whatever it was, um, that they haven't used it, you know, in any kind of mainstream way or haven't really deployed it in production or anything like that. But the fact is, they're collecting that data, and there's really no good example that most people can come up with of why they could use that data in a way that actually serves the user or serves anyone right. besides Uber, right. right? So there's another example. It just happened um, yesterday, although I don't know when this uh, this episode will go live. But uh, just recently, a um, a couple was having an an argument, and it was it was looking like. Uh, in in the retelling and the reporting I've seen, it looks like an abusive situation. Um, and the man said, um, "Did you call the sheriffs to to the woman that he was yelling at?" And there was a Google Home device, and it heard the phrase "call the sheriffs" and took that as a command, and so it called nine one one. Oh my god! And the police showed up, and there was an altercation, and they arrested the man um who was you know we think presumably abusing his uh partner well okay so there's a couple of levels to that story right one is well thank goodness that the police were called but another thing is you know there's a there's been a lot of cases of police showing up at doors and just starting shooting um and there being a lot of um you know, sort of people who had called the police and then getting shot by the police when they show up, you know, horrible situations, a lot of police shooting overreach has been happening, as we all know, in the last few years. And so there's a there's a big social justice question here and a a privacy question and a safety question, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, when these things are listening to us all the time and there's a certain level of, okay, that one was an accident in a sense where the, the device misinterpreted a command. But if there's, it's either there's an accident or there's some kind of like uh, overeager programming where someone maybe thinks that that's a good feature to include in in the uh, the options of the device that you don't know how to turn on or off or whatever. I mean, there, there's a lot of ways that this can go wrong, yeah. and uh, and so I think it's incumbent upon upon us, you know, as as strategists, as designers, as people who are thinking about technology and its role in human experiences, to really think about. The implications mm-hmm. of the decisions of the of those designs, and and the the potential for overreach, and the potential for you know safety violations, and ways that it, it could just be bad.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting ethical question because. You know, I've talked with friends also about the fact that, you know, we know they're listening in on our phones and our conversations and, you know, they justify it as, well, we're making sure that there's no terrorism talk or there's, you know, they're looking for key words in the conversations. And I, I would say, well, if that's what it takes to keep us safe, you know, I guess it's fine. I'm not talking about anything that they might hear some very interesting conversations, but I have nothing to hide at the same time. But then ethically... Do they have any business doing that? Well, not really. I mean, it's like this whole weird thing that they 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 sell safety or fear or you know whatnot. And you talked to so yeah. I saw you lecture here in Nashville, and you talked about the fact that um, that there you know there's cameras on the street corners watching our every move. Our phones are registering you know what we purchase, what we're reading, what we're saying. All this kind of it's it's that big brother versus the little guy, but then the little guy's like, well, I'm scared, you know, so maybe it's okay. It's just, it's a whole, it's such a huge topic.
1: It is a huge topic, and the, you know, uh, the I Have Nothing to Hide um, framework is a really problematic one, because, you know, we we have to be mindful of the fact that, different people have different experiences and, and we do really have marginalized people in our society that, you know, we have class issues and race issues and, and lots of, of really kind of like historic baggage that, that mm-hmm. we still haven't done a very good job sorting through in, in our current culture. So I think, you know, to, to try to have conversations about privacy and security without considering that, you know, there's, there are people f- for whom this would be a grave danger you know, for, for things to kind of overreach their their security, to, for them to overreach their ability to, to their right to not have the police called on them, for example. Absolutely. Uh, that, you know, I, I think that's a, that's a consideration that, that needs to be part of the discussion. And it's also a reason why, and I just said this on Twitter yesterday, it's one of the reasons why diversity in technology is so fundamentally important. Why having a, a very truly diverse, like across all different dimensions of diversity, Um, workforce doing technology programming and design and strategy and Mm -hmm. and all of this, why it becomes very important that we have uh, a lot of gender diversity, racial diversity, sexual orientation diversity, and and disability diversity, you know, all kinds of ways that people's experiences differ so that what it really comes down to is biases get encoded into data structures and into technology Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just... Human nature, we, we program and design things with assumptions built in. And the more th- those assumptions are based on our lived experience. Mm-hmm. And so the more diverse our lived experience is, the more likely we are to um, program with less bias and to, mm-hmm. to make things that have less chance of going terribly wrong for, mm-hmm. for people. So I think that's a really kind of important way that, that these topics kind of connect with one another is yeah. that, you know. We really need to be thinking about um, about hiring in ways that, you know, are inclusive and getting uh, and not just in technology, but certainly it's important in technology yeah. to, to get those lived experiences representing uh, the, the best possible perspective on what reality really is for a, a, a wide variety of people. Well,
0: I mean, that's such an important point, too. When when I say things like, oh, I have nothing to hide, I'm, I'm talking about me myself, but I, I am a humanist. I'm certainly a libertarian and, you know, I don't think anyone has the right to listen in on someone if they say, oh, yeah, I sold weed to my grandma, and then <laughs> suddenly, you don't even... It, it, right, it, and it, that sort
1: of thing, I think it's still very much in debate about whether that sort of thing is going to be admissible um, in criminal cases. For example, like I know there were, there've been examples of um, uh, Amazon uh, Echo devices that have been um, able to pick up and record um, snippets of of interactions that took place in in what become later crime scenes. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, you know, do those passive recordings you know, belong being admissible as evidence in any way. Like if someone, there was a man who had been killed or who fo- was found dead in his in his apartment, um, and there was an Amazon uh, a Alexa device or an Echo device that was present in the home, and the, the recordings were, I believe, they were subpoenaed by the sheriff's office or department or something like that. Amazon. You know, sort of has to admit at this point that they do have this database of passive recordings. And now it becomes a much more interesting question of should the passive recordings going on in these smart home devices be able to be admitted under any circumstances, even when they might help solve a crime like a murder uh, type of situation, right. so it, it's really a, a big puzzle because, of course, you don't want to create precedent for something that could go in a nefarious way. Oh, absolutely! You know? and didn't
0: Apple refuse the subpoena? Were they being subpoenaed for information on the phone? I, I don't.
1: Yeah, know. on the San Bernardino shooting, yeah, uh, there was a uh, subpoena yeah. to to provide. Uh, decryption on, on the um, shooter's device. Um, and yeah, they, they've refused. And, and rightly so. I, I think you know, they... I, And the thing
0: is, is you can follow... I think the people that get caught up in the moment, they're like, well, absolutely, Apple should release this stuff. And it's so important. And this act of domestic terrorism and violence. And, you know, what does it mean for the bigger picture? And I'm like, yes, exactly. What does it mean for the bigger... Follow <laughs> right. the line. Keep going down the line. Flash yeah. forward 50 years, 25 years... And that moment in time will change everything. So I applauded Apple for saying, no, you can't. This is private information. You can't have this.
1: I'm Uh, sure I'll get letters
0: for that. But I do think that that's. You know, and well, you got to take a
1: stand on it. I mean, I think you know people. People may have differing opinions and, and ways of, of parsing it together and, yeah. and understanding the, the risk and reward of that situation. But I, in my view, and it sounds like in your view too, you know, you do have to be thinking about um, ways that that creates precedent for something that could be abused in the future. Um, mm. And that you know, even if it could, even if we could all come to an agreement that in this particular case, it's good. Then that situation would become precedent That's for situations in the future right. that may not be as clear cut. Um, even if, even if this is clear cut, yeah. and I don't necessarily think everybody would agree that it's clear cut. So it's it's a uh, it's a really puzzling thing. And thank goodness, you no, know, my expertise is not in in law and yeah. you know, trying to figure out how to determine what's uh, admissible and what isn't and what good precedent for these kinds of things is or is not, but you know, my expertise is in experience and in yeah. trying to think about how uh, how to create the most meaningful experiences for people in the moment by thinking about the future of strategy and how things are going to come to life in, in different ways as, as time goes on, as the natural trajectory of innovation around these devices and future devices comes into being and really paying attention to the patterns that are in place. So it, it matters to think about things like you know the home invasion uh, or the, the um, domestic dispute situation where the police show up. It matters to think about smart devices listening in on us all the time, and and your example of your phone's listening in, and then you seeing you know tailored targeted ads in uh, your Facebook stream the next day. Like wait a minute, I was just talking about these socks yesterday, and now they're showing up in my Facebook stream or whatever. Socks would be a terrible example of that. <laughs> Something I much more socks, exciting. <laughs> I was down with it, the socks. That was good. <laughs> yeah. It just seems, you know, it's a it's a simple enough example. I I feel like people have, have uh, been able to provide many to me over the the month, the last few months and years of things that they have said that have been completely absurd, unusual edge case discussions that they would never have had before and never would have been searching for and just circumstances brought them up in a discussion and then the very next day, you know, they're seeing targeted ads for that thing.
0: There was a question I asked you when you gave the lecture that I'd like to ask again even though you gave an answer and it was a great answer but I, I'm, I'm going to ask it again just for so other people are <laughs> sure. here. Um, I asked you how your research and these things that you've learned along the way and where you're heading in your research how that has um, changed how you operate within the context of your own life.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a really interesting question because I I see so many different approaches. Um, People that are um, peers of mine take different approaches to how they uh, present themselves online and and, what what they share and what they don't share. Um, I am definitely uh, someone who I think could be perceived as an oversharer in in what I post. Um, I do post a lot of you know pretty personal things and I've been very visible about you know life uh, life events that mm-hmm. have gone on and things like that. Um, but I also am um, very mindful of them. And so it's it's a it's a decision I think everybody has to make for themselves and, and sort of interpret in whatever way is going to be meaningful for how they connect with others and what risk they're exposing themselves to. But I think they do need to think about that risk. Yeah. They do need to think about, you know, what every every little thing that they share online has the potential to go completely out of their control and be seen by anyone and be used in any way. And so, you know, we do have to be mindful of that. But, that, so that said, I think the example I gave you... Um, In Nashville was, uh, you know, I I get this, you know, Facebook does the on this day, you know, kind of like trace back through your memories thing. And I love using that as an example to not only review, you know, kind of what the last uh, 10 years or whatever it's been of being on that platform have been. Um, That's really, I think, a really fascinating sort of slice through history when we don't a a way of presenting our personal histories that we don't usually see Mm. this arbitrary, like on this day kind of arrangement, but it's also, I use it as an opportunity to um, go back and kind of like retrofit the permissions of content and decide, you know, like things that were, I shared publicly, you know, five years ago or something like that. Maybe it's not really relevant to have those be public anymore. Maybe, you know, I don't necessarily want them being, Um, certainly they're indexed and searchable in ways that, you know, they're probably in, uh, publicly searchable archives in some way, shape or form, but maybe I don't necessarily want for someone coming new to my Facebook profile and digging through my, uh, archives to come across them. Like Mm -hmm. maybe that's just something that like, I'm going to hold back right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's something that I, I sort of offer that up every time I talk to groups as like a tip. You can take away for yourself is just use them as your own tool and you know kind of re-own your own privacy and re-own your permissions Mm -hmm. so i've done that with a few other platforms as well like um Uh, Foursquare. I was really an avid user of Foursquare for many years. And and even when they split off and were doing Swarm and everybody had fallen off as, you know, nobody was really using it anymore, except for a few really diehard users. And a couple of my friends and I had these like ongoing competitions where we were always checking in for the most points and trying to, you know, game it and everything. Um, But I I really got nervous about, or not nervous exactly, but just like concerned at a a certain degree about the level of data and patterning, you know, pattern matching that I was giving to the public and to um, the government and to whoever, you know, just kind of what I was putting out there about my movements through place. And, you know, kind of what I was saying about here's where I tend to go. So if you really wanted to find me, here's where you would find me. So, you know, there could be any number of situations where I don't necessarily want that out there. A stalker could be the situation, or it could be, you know, the, the government gets overzealous and, you know, tries to crack down on people who have been at protests, and I've been at protests, so I don't necessarily want that to be out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and and maybe it doesn't ever get to. The Handmaid's Tale level dystopia, or or something like that. But I think we we just have to be able to come to a place where we each feel comfortable with the level of exposure we're putting ourselves through, and the level of um, connectedness we get from that. You know, so there's a there's a balance to strike between um, the more I share personally and intimately and truthfully about who I am and what I'm doing every day the more my friends can keep up with me and, you know, connect with me and relate to me. But at the same time, the more I'm kind of giving out into the algorithms of the world to figure out who I am and what to market to me and how to trace me and track me and things like that. Yeah, it's good. (laughs)
0: God, it's, an, it's a fascinating world. It's such a fascinating topic to me. All this AI. it just I, I think about this stuff all the time. I'm so intrigued by it all. What, well, what? then
1: you should be a, a, a consultant, strategist, author, speaker as well. <laughs> well, I think you probably know a heap
0: more than I do. For me, it's just going off on strange tangents in my mind about possibilities and what it all means. What is the new book about?
1: So the new book is about um, artificial intelligence and automation and other forms of you know sort of machine driven interaction, in, and how that relates to meaningful human experience and how how it shapes it. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, how um, data driven experiences shape human experiences, and um, I, so I'm really I'm really excited about this topic because I think it's very timely. I think it's also um, it's super important just for this reason we're just talking about you know this. Um, we we all have to be able to navigate um, our lives in the world um, where data is is everywhere around us. You know, where everything we do is giving off data. It's just kind of like there's a I talk about this in pixels in place that there's a data trail of everything, of everything we do, and every product we consume, and every place we go, and everything. There's data associated with all of it. Um, And that's not bad or nefarious. It's just, you know, something that I think we need to be very conscious and mindful of, like how we sort of create our our movements through that space and how we uh, live in that world. And then on the flip side of that, you know, from a a business executive and, you know, um, business owner, designer, strategist point of view, how do you create experiences that connect with people in these data rich environments that are profitable, but that also create meaningful opportunities mm-hmm. You know that, that can, can make your brand more resonant and, and memorable and meaningful to consumers while also being respectful of privacy and discreet and things like that? So there's a way to, to do it. And I'm, I'm very excited about kind of exploring that and laying that out there for people. Do you know the title of the book yet? I, um, I'm working on, I have a working title, but I'm not going to put it out there. No, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
0: when, when do you uh, see it coming out, the book?
1: I had been working to a, um, a fall launch this year, um, just like I did. I did a fall launch with Pixels in Place last year. Um, but I think I've actually decided um, to, to push it to spring um, of uh, 2018, so mm-hmm. that's that's what I'll target, and it's been really interesting too as the the journey of an independent book publisher. Um, you know, self uh, you call it self published author, but it's actually I, I think it's a it's a little bit of a misleading thing to to say that because you really as just as a self published author you become an independent book publisher and mm-hmm. trying to figure out all of the uh, the many many functions and activities of a publisher and getting the author on the road and making sure that there are opportunities to promote the book in relevant contexts and connect mm-hmm. with audiences and you know kind of support the content in various ways. Um, it's it's a very interesting thing to kind of straddle that uh, reality of being. An author and also the publisher of that author. Yeah, no,
0: absolutely, it's got it. It's that's a lot to take on. Hence your flowcharts behind you. Talk about those yeah. when, I, when we first got online. And I saw those behind you. I'm like, what is all that? So to to tell the people that can't see behind Kate is um, all these pieces of paper that have much uh, much line. They kind of look like the um, the final four bracketing kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So What's what is that?
1: It's funny. I had uh, one podcast interview I was doing where the guy described it as the John Nash Beautiful Mind background. I like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I can see that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's mind maps. So uh, if anybody's not familiar, you know, there's a, a sort of diagramming technique where you take um, a core idea and put it at the center of a piece of paper. You can do this on you know by hand with a pen and paper. Um, but I do it in a, a software app called MindNode. Um, there's many other apps that do it. You take just a core concept and then you sort of uh, break it out into related concepts and, and distill those into their related concepts and so on. And you can create connections between them and, you know, kind of really dig into it. It's sort of like outlining in a mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that I do this in a way that l- lets me take a concept like meaning And blow that out in a bunch of different ways. And then take a concept like strategy and blow that out in a bunch of different ways. And then when I find, I I usually find that there's a node of the network in a sense, like one little leg of the whole diagram in the meaning diagram. And one little leg of the strategy diagram that speak to each other in a sense. And it's a really cool and interesting connection that I probably wouldn't have arrived at um, in any other way, and it's an opportunity for an article or a blog post or some way or a, a talk or something like that. That's so it's so a really cool, cool way yeah, of getting yourself through some really disconnected and um, interesting thinking.
0: Wow, what a great idea. MindNode, it's
1: called. Yeah, MindNode. I think it's two words, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, you can search for that and uh, come across it. I think there's a free version and a paid version, and I don't know what the difference is, but um, there's also other free apps out there. Or just draw it on a piece of paper. Sure. It's, a, it's a great way to get some clarity in your thinking.
0: Yeah. Kate, this is, I, I feel like I could probably ask you 8,000 million <laughs> questions. This is just so great. I, I really appreciate your time because I know it's, you're very busy. Um, tell everybody, you're, I'm going to put links on HeyHumanPodcast.com that'll link to all this that we've talked about your books and, and all your socials and all that stuff. But for people listening, what is the best way to find you?
1: koinsights.com is my uh, my business website I'm also incredibly prolific on twitter if anybody is game for that so I'm at Kate O K A T E O on twitter um, and there's a million other ways to connect with me online but those will get you there
0: yeah and I'll, again I'll put links for that thank you so very much
1: thank you Susan this has been really fun
0: absolutely thank you bye everyone